0: Hey, welcome to the Run the FBC Sermon Podcast. I'm really excited to see that you're seeking the Lord with your time and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Before you listen, however, I just want to issue out a disclaimer. If at any point during this message you feel like you need to work for God's approval and salvation, stop and instead remember that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Always keep that in mind and you will be ready to receive from the Lord. Today we're going to continue our study on the book of Hebrews and address the reasons why Jesus had to die. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15-28, through and let's listen to the message, Firmly Rooted. Do you ever worry about turning your back on God? And I don't know if you've been following the news recently, but in the last month there have been two very high-profile people who once claimed to be Christians and have now declared that they're not Christians anymore. First is a man by the name of Joshua Harris, uh, a former pastor and author of the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye. In his statement on social media, he apologized to the LBGT community for condemning the homosexual agenda in his books. He ended up divorcing his wife, and he just flat out came out and said, I'm not a Christian. The second is a man by the name of Marty Sampson, uh, who is a famous songwriter and singing singer in the worship band uh, Hillsong. You may have heard of it. Uh, in his statement, he said, I am genuinely losing my faith. And it doesn't bother me. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. Christians can be some of the most beautiful and loving people. It's just not for me. Now, what bothers me most about these two men is how they served in positions of authority without possessing genuine faith. You may be thinking, well, wait, John, how can you say that? You didn't know their hearts, do you? I mean, can you see their hearts? How do you know they didn't possess genuine faith in God? And please understand that I don't say that with a hint of spiritual pride or arrogance. I only say that because it's what the Word of God actually teaches. The Apostle John says, 1 John 2:19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out so that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, It doesn't matter. What he's saying is it doesn't matter how convincing a person is regarding their faith in God. If a person ever turns away... They never had genuine faith, faith in the first place. Now, if a person doesn't possess genuine faith, my question is, how are they able to fool the people of God who do? I mean, how do you arise to a position of church leadership without genuine faith in Christ? Listen, things like this, they can shake us up. And I don't know if when you hear about these things, you also begin to turn inward and think, well, could that happen to me? Personally, I think this is an excellent question for, to take to the word of god i don't think it's a very wise idea to puff ourselves up and say no never i'll follow christ to prison and even death because that's just what peter said and he denied even knowing jesus when persecution came less than 24 hours later mind you i would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the messages on Hebrews 6 where we studied about whether a person can lose their salvation or not um because in those messages, we studied some foundational truths about God and how he preserves those whom he has called to be his. Since these things in the media have happened, I have read several articles with the headlines like, What in the world is going on in Christianity? And if all the leaders are leaving, is it time to abandon ship? And where does this leave the church? Well, today what I'd like to do is present you with information that will hopefully answer these questions and even give you a fresh perspective on what to do in situations like these. First off, despite being caught by surprise by these men, quote, falling away, this is not something that should surprise us. I mean, Jesus said this was going to happen in the parable of the four soils. He mentioned that there was a type of ground where the plant sprang up quickly, but because it didn't get their roots down deep because of the bedrock underneath, the sun, which represents persecution, Came and caused the plant to die. And I believe Jesus was making reference to those uh, of us whose root is not established in Him. So when persecution comes, there was not faith to anchor them to the Lord, and they turned away. There's no root to get sustenance from uh, the ground. And so, although this is a very fresh topic in the media, it isn't even something new for our culture. In our lifetime, there have been several high-profile pastors and preachers who have claimed to have faith and yet turned away from God. For example, Robert Templeton. Maybe think of who is Robert Templeton? Robert Templeton was a very high-profile televangelist and pastor who toured the country with Billy Graham preaching the gospel to the world. Robert Templeton would set him up and Billy Graham would knock him down. But after seeing graphic images of the Second World War, which, by the way, is the first time really in history that those, those images began being flashed to the public while the war was occurring, he began to question how a loving God could allow something as terrible as war to occur. You see, theologically, he wasn't grounded in faith. He might have had knowledge and training But his roots weren't deep in the truth of the word of God. So he didn't have an answer to these challenges of faith. And so he threw up his hands and he said, I quit. Now the point I'm trying to make here is that this isn't something new. This has always been a threat to church attenders. It is possible to say that we have faith but have no root in the word of God, which is why it's deadly to our faith if we don't study God's word. But most importantly, we have to see that doubt is not an intellectual battle. This is a spiritual battle. It, 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 that's the game of spiritual warfare to really make us think like we're intellectually stupid or ignorant. The problem, of course, is that it's not a matter of how much we know, but a matter of faith. And this can get confusing because the way we get our roots down deep in faith is to know and study the Word of God. But it's not about how much we know about the Bible intellectually. The depth of our root has to do with how much information God has revealed to us spiritually. This is why Jesus said to the Father in Matthew 11:25, 25, I praise you, Father, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you revealed them to the little children. Because it's not all about intellect and the things that we know with our mind. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to present you with an intellectual argument about why you shouldn't believe in God. And I'm going to attempt to address that very same question from a spiritual perspective using Hebrews 9, 15 through 28. The argument sounds like this. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, do you believe that Jesus had to die so you could be saved? Okay, well, let me get this straight. You believe that God killed his own son to save you. Is that right? Really? You do realize how sick that sounds, don't you? I mean, what kind of bloodthirsty, vengeful God do you believe in? Not only do you believe in a God who would put someone he supposedly loves under extreme torture and punishment... Isn't it also correct that if I don't believe in all this stuff that he's reserved the same fate for me and everyone else that rejects Christianity? So let me get this straight. You believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, right? So everyone else in the world except for you is deceived? You're the only one who believes the truth. Is that right? Well, let me tell you something, Junior. That's not a God that I would want to believe in. My God is not a God of wrath, but a God of love. In fact, I don't even know if I believe in a God, but if I did, it certainly wouldn't be in a bloodthirsty, hateful, misogynistic God like that. My God loves everyone, especially those that love others, those who show love and tolerance to everyone, a God who has given us many ways to approach him, many religions, many truths, many roads Now i don't know if whenever i was presenting this argument to you the hair on the back of your neck started to rise up now i don't know if that's the case but if not then it's probably because you know that i'm setting up what's known as a straw man argument i'm about, about to use god's word to just obliterate this argument but imagine being in a situation where this isn't theoretical That you are not prepared to answer his argument. Shouldn't be hard to picture since many people have made this this exact same argument. These are people who are enemies with God. Who want to make everyone who follows God feel dumb. But we're going to give God an opportunity to defend himself using his word today. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to continue our study on the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28. This is what it says. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death had taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who had been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is... There must be a necessity, be uh, the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. There even, therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and, And the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one might almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of all the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of all the ages, he has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reverence to sin to those who eagerly await him. Let's pray. God, we come to you now, and I just ask that you would um, reveal the truth through your word. God, we can study this and get all the intellectual information that we can gather, but God, without you, it is worthless. And Father, um, I just pray that we would not look at this passage of Scripture through our own world lens. God that you might open our eyes so that we can see and open our ears so that we can hear father and really show us how to get our roots down deep in you love you father and I thank you for this opportunity to share your word and I pray God that I might somehow do it justice we love you father and all these things I pray in Jesus name amen so the question is why did Jesus have to die If you were here last week, we talked about how there were things that the nation of Israel had to do in the Old Covenant to clean themselves up so they could stand in the presence of God. And this involved all the elements in the temple where each object served a purpose to cleanse people from sin to prepare men to meet with God. And we talked last week about how the New Covenant was enacted, one that the author of Hebrews says in 8.6 is superior to the Old One and is founded on better promises. Several times so far, he has defined a job description for Jesus in this covenant. And, and I just want to want you to pay special attention to it today because he uses it again in reference to Christ. He says in verse 15, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And what I believe he's saying here is that because Jesus offered himself unblemished to the Father, he alone can serve as a mediator between us and God because he stands in God's presence The high priest would go before God once a year on the Day of Atonement, being cleaned on the outside, but not on the inside. See, Jesus, though, was clean on inside and out. A mediator is someone who stands between two opposing parties and works to bring about a settlement. Consider just for a second the two opposing sides. In the red corner stands the holy god of all creation the creator of all things the sustainer of life the holy and righteous god whose very nature demands that all unrighteousness be decimated and destroyed he weighs in with all of his majesty and glory with all ten commandments and righteous judgment in the blue corner stands the unrepentant sinner the breaker of all God's laws, the one who has blasphemed God's name and has tried to put himself up on God's throne. He weighs in with all the arrogance and self-righteousness he can muster, mistaken in the belief that he ever stood a chance to stand before the Almighty God. Now, Jesus in this scenario is not the announcer who says, "'Let's get ready to stumble!' He's not the referee who says, okay, guys, I want a good, clean fight here. No punching below the belt. He's not the coach in our corner who's rubbing Vaseline under our eyes and saying, this guy's a killer rock. He doesn't just want to win. He wants to destroy you. You just got to keep your hands up and stay moving. Jesus is the one who's telling us to throw in the towel now because once that bell rings, we're done for. He's the one who wants us to cancel the fight because we are hopelessly outmatched. He's the one who says, I will meet with him on your behalf and we will settle this a different way. I don't know if you ever played Punch-Out!! on on Nintendo, but you know how you had that, that big, massive guy on the other side of the ring, if you ever play it, you know what I'm talking about, and you're just like this little guy that pretty much looks like me in shorts that are about to fall off of I you. Mean, like, that's not even a comparison to how outmatched you, you really are. Jesus is saying, I'm going to mediate for you. We're going to settle this differently, okay? And it's here that we can identify one powerful reason why Christ had to die on our behalf. In verse 15, it says... Because a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, Jesus had to die to pay for the sins of all the elect. Jesus didn't just die for those in the future through the new covenant, but for those who had died under the old covenant. Hebrews 11 is going to help shed a little more light on how this came about, but essentially the idea is this. God gave Moses and the nation of Israel a system by which Jesus could buy their sins on credit. It's like saying, I'll gladly pay you tomorrow for a hamburger today. The blood of Jesus not only covers the sins of the people 2,000 years later, but it serves retroactively to cover all the sins of the people 2,000 years before Christ when the covenant was made. He says later in verse 25, the high priest would have to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, every single year. You see, it wasn't a system that solved anything. It was just a covenant, a system that kicked the can down the road. It put the sin on credit until someone could come around and pay the tab. So for us, we look to the past when Jesus died and uh, for us and those under the old covenant look forward to when God would send full payment for their sin. And it's when you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying in this verse that verses like Psalm 18, one and 2 make more sense. King David said, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In other words... I'm going to camp out inside your castle, God, because you're my refuge and shield. You are the one who's going to bring me salvation. I trust that you will keep me safe until that answer is given. Man, God is sick. All who don't believe in Jesus are doomed to eternal suffering. Well, hang on, hang on. You're missing a few elements in your argument. Let's bring some full perspective to that situation, shall we? First, I think it's important to keep in mind that when you worship the actual God, not just a God of your own choosing or creation, you will see that he always pointed us to Christ. Nothing has changed. Not just those who lived after Christ, but those who lived in anticipation of what God was going to do about this sin problem under under, under the Old Covenant. And the most beautiful element of what Christ did for us on the cross is that he wasn't drugged there, kicking and screaming. Jesus went willfully. You want know, to we'll talk about a God of love. Well, what communicates love the most? Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. Oh, that's sick, is it? Because from Jesus' perspective, the one who actually went to suffer and die on our behalf, not somebody who just talked about it later on, he willingly went to show us how much he loved us. It was, in his mind, the greatest expression of love. So yes, Jesus had to die to pay for all of the sins of the elect. But also, Jesus had to die to enact the inheritance for all the beneficiaries. So far, we talked a lot about the Old and the New Covenants in our study in Hebrews. And thankfully, here in verses 16 through 18, the author of Hebrews brings some clarity on what a covenant is. Let me read that again. He says, For where a covenant is, there must be a necessity, uh, must of necessity, be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced when the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. What he's saying here is that a covenant is very much like a will. Now today, just like covenants, wills can be conditional. Well, if my son wants my fortune, he better not marry that hussy who shakes her behind around. I don't think so. The old covenant was conditional, just like a will is conditional today. Essentially, God told the nation of Israel, if you keep my laws and you do what I tell you to do, I will be your God and I will protect you. And as the author of Hebrews mentions in Hebrews 8, the new covenant was made on better promises. What better promises? Well, before we go there, just keep in mind, just like how the old covenant was conditional, the new covenant is conditional too. Wait a minute, Pastor John, that's not grace. Well, just listen. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but inherit eternal life. What are the benefits of this covenant? What are the benefits of this will? Not perish but inherit eternal life. What are the conditions of this covenant? What are the conditions of this will? Whosoever believes in Him. Belief in His only begotten Son, Jesus. Wait a minute, you're telling me that all I have to do is believe? No law-keeping, no cleansings, no killing goats, just believe? Believe, and all I have to do, and I, that's all I have to do, and I get to walk unafraid into the presence of the Almighty God. Well, let's keep in mind that it's easier said than done, and we'll get to that in just a minute. The author of Hebrews points out that the covenant wasn't enacted until the ones who made the covenant died. God, whoever, whoever writes a will, has to die before that will is put into place. And see, God made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites, and the author tells us the only thing that was dying there was the goats and the oxen. But see, when Jesus arrived on the scene, Moses and the Israelites were dead. If God made this covenant with Moses and the Israelites... And they died. Who was the only one left alive who made this covenant? Oh, it's so sick that God would kill someone that he supposedly loved. He sent his son to be tortured and to die. Well, hold on a minute, Junior. You're forgetting a major fact in your argument. And that is that Jesus is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's one thing for me to put my son through extreme punishment for someone else. It's a whole different story for me to do that to myself so that they can be saved. Oh, well, my God is a God of love. No, your God isn't a God of love because he doesn't care about you. Even if he were real, which he's not, he's never done anything for you. At least my God cared enough about my soul that he gave himself up for me. And let's not forget, yes, Jesus did die on a cross. He suffered and he died, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay my life down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This commandment I received from my Father. John ten eighteen. Jesus had to die to ensure that the will would come into effect. But hey, he didn't stay dead. Jesus had to die that by his blood, we might be prepared to face judgment. The author says in verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What kind of masochistic, bloodthirsty God requires blood to pay for sin? The kind of God that's sovereign and says this is the way things are going to be and no amount of arguing or rationaling is going to change things. And we talked last week about how God spared Adam and Eve by killing an animal on their behalf and clothing them with its skin. Now it sounds sick until you realize that a law was broken and there had to be punishment. Think about this for just a second. He gave them one law. One. Don't eat that fruit. And what's really sick is that they couldn't even keep one law, not one. So God spared them because of his grace. God warned them in advance, don't eat it or you will surely die, and he spared them by killing something else on their behalf. No, 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 not a goat. Himself. Jesus came as our perfect sacrifice, the holy and spotless Lamb of God, to take our punishment, so that we might stand before God at judgment unafraid. Well, that's just sick. Okay, all right, let's say you actually had the ability to stand before God and make that accusation. You don't. Romans 9:20 says, "Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? But let's pretend for a minute that you could stand before God and accuse him of wrongdoing. You're forgetting probably one of the most important elements of how all this went down. You're right. Under God's sovereignty and perfect knowledge, he did send his son Jesus to suffer and die on a cross on our behalf. You're absolutely right. But who actually issued out that suffering and punishment? Ironically, it was the same man who were responsible for sacrificing the land upon the altar under the old covenant who were responsible for sacrificing the son of God under the new covenant. We really should stop asking the question, why did Jesus have to die, and start asking the question, why did they kill him? In case you need a little bit more time to think about that one, Mr. Atheist, let me explain some of their motivations. You see, they refused to fall under the authority of the Almighty God who had given that authority to the Messiah, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. They hated him because he stripped away their supposed authority and reminded them that there was a God and it wasn't them. They condemned him because he confronted them in their sin. They persecuted him because they were jealous of the power God had made manifest in him. They turned his words to fill their own agendas of turning others away from him because they didn't want to come to him themselves. They manipulated people to shout, crucify him, crucify him, even though he came to die on their behalf. They mocked him from the cross saying, this man came to save sinners, but he can't even save himself. They denied any wrongdoing and did everything they could to cover up his resurrection they hardened their hearts against God and thus remain enemies with God. And once their bell rang, once the end of their life came and they stood before God, a holy and righteous judgmental God, and gave, they had to give account to what they had done. And they were unable to stand before that righteous God and they will spend eternity in hell. Who, Mr. Atheist, does that sound like? Does that sound like anybody You know, you're absolutely right. It's sick to punish and sacrifice God's son on the cross, and because of your arrogance and self-righteousness, that's exactly why he died. Listen, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. It is because... Of arrogance and self-righteousness and pride that says, I don't need a savior. My God is a loving God and would never send me to hell. Listen, your God does not exist. You've made him up. This is what the actual God says. Don't eat that fruit. Don't do that. And you did it. You're guilty. Listen, this, this is why it is so important that Jesus had to die. To give us hope as we would stand before judgment. Jesus had to die so that we might be cleansed by his blood so we can stand before God unafraid. Jesus is our mediator, the enactor of the will, the one who makes us right before God. As you can tell, I get a little heated when people try to make me and those I love feel stupid for following Jesus. But probably the most frustrating thing in all of this is that despite all the information that's found in the book of Hebrews, people still refuse to submit to God. And this is because it's not about intellectual knowledge. No, no, no. It's not about how much we know, but about how much God reveals to us when we, and we spiritually understand. And it starts with, I'm a sinner. And I'm in big trouble. Then the things that God did for us by sending his son to die for us on a cross why it might seem sick to the world. No, no, that is the most beautiful truth that you could ever know. It's not about how much we know. It's about how much God reveals to us. Well, these men of faith turned away. No, no. They didn't have their faith grounded in God, but in other things. I'm sure they had lots of information. They studied the Bible and and learned a lot of intellectual things, but see, their roots weren't down deep because there was bedrock in their hearts. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. Well, do you understand how impossible that is for man to do alone? We cannot come to God on our own terms. Jesus said no one can come to the Son unless the Father has enabled him. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who's no Jesus, he's a a German pastor, he once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come on. Come die. Come lay down your life. Only God can convince a person to do that. I mean, who cares, really, if, if, if others in the world consider us to be intellectually stupid? I suppose I care because it makes me I don't like feeling dumb. I don't like people acting like they're better than me. And by comparison, I met tons of atheists who are extremely well-educated and intelligent, more so than I am. However, thank God that he took away from the wise and learned and revealed it to the little children. There's lots of things I don't know. But let me tell you, there's one thing I do know. And I'm never letting go of this truth. Jesus came to save sinners, of which I was one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. No amount of turning Jesus' words or arrogance will ever change that fact. God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. I am his, and he is mine. I want to end in prayer this morning because I know we all need it <coughs> we're constantly bombarded with spiritual warfare and so I'm just going to ask if you would just pray with me let's let's go to the Lord together and and keep in mind that we're only able to do this because Christ had to die Lord we we need you We are constantly bombarded by arguments that come straight from the pit of hell. We are constantly under attack and are in danger of of being persuaded that we are stupid to ever believe in you. But God, you gave us eyes to see. You gave us ears to hear. Even if we have the intelligence of a barnyard chicken, God, you have given us life, and we are no longer ignorant. So, Father, I ask that you help us get our roots down deep in you, that when persecution comes, that, Father, we might draw sustenance from you. Help us to study your word, and God, reveal your truth to our hearts. Remind us that because of Jesus, we can stand before you at judgment unafraid. Help us, Lord, to know that the world is going to reject you, and it's going to reject us because it hates you. Help us, Father, deliver that message of reconciliation that Jesus gave to us and commanded us to take out to a lost and dying world. Father, because above all else, you love us. Remind us that we too once were lost, just like the world, but you came to save us. We love you, God, because you love us. And it's all these things I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope this message has been an encouragement to you and that you have a renewed purpose and dedication to trust in the Lord and serve Him. Please feel free to download our church app so that you never miss another message by searching FBC Rungi in the Apple App Store or Google Play. We at Rungi First Baptist Church are here to take root, grow, and bear fruit. So if you'd like to join with us in our mission, then let's get out there and bring glory to God.